Welcome to another episode of Le Chiffre's Inside the Street. Today we're going to be taking a very wide perspective around macroeconomics and how a few central themes continue to shape the global markets across a variety of asset classes, including equities, fixed income, commodities, and alternative investments. With so much controversy around the outlook for these asset classes, what can investors really expect throughout the remainder of the year? It's February 13th, and I'm your host, Robert Nahigian, alongside Miggy Finella. So I wanted to start with an overview of the macro environment and cover everything that's been shaping performance across several asset classes. It seems like these dynamics have pretty much been building up since 2022 when the yield curves first inverted. The level of uncertainty and volatility over such a long period of time is, is absolutely historic. Certainly the biggest factor contributing to this uncertainty has been the Fed's very aggressive tightening agenda with some of the fastest series of rate hikes the markets have seen. Mickey, I was wondering if you could touch on that a little bit. Yeah, always a pleasure to speak with you, Rob. Uh, We saw the CPI print for December higher than expected, and the January CPI print to be released in a few hours has some mixed signals. Economists are looking at a 0.2 increase for the month, which translates to a 12-month deacceleration and would bring the CPI below 3% for the first time in almost three years. But all eyes are on core CPI expected to rise 0.3%. And what has really been keeping that inflation sticky around 3% has been the cost of services across the globe reflecting a tight labor market. Again, kind of a mixed signal after the employment data for January illustrated tech and finance sector layoffs amidst hiring that came in way above consensus and the 2023 levels. The main risk here is that goods prices could shoot higher with the geopolitical tensions that are affecting supply chains. Yes, I also wanted to highlight the Fed's mandate compared to this resilient consumer we continue to see since 2023. Last year, Fed funds futures were pricing in rate cuts toward the back half of 2023. What were we also seeing toward the back end of 2023? A resilient consumer. We're seeing a similar story today. Wages are growing very nicely, and we really have to ask ourselves, is the futures market pricing in what the labor market is telling us? The futures market is pricing in up to six cuts throughout 2024, and it's tricky to put in perspective what that actually looks like over just nine and a half months, but it's a lot. And it really appears that the consumer has been in pretty good shape and will likely continue to be in pretty good shape, indicating that there is some notable mispricing in the futures market. Our analysts at Le Chiffre aren't forecasting six cuts before the end of the year, but more like two, maybe three cuts. And these discrepancies are going to inevitably contribute heavily to volatility over the next few months, especially given that essentially every asset class is driven by these rates and there's so much uncertainty behind them. Something else I wanted to touch on that investors are keeping a close eye out for is a major election year. Specifically speaking, within the U.S., it appears that a rematch is inevitable and we're likely to see Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Of course, when it comes to elections, something to highlight is the changes in volatility around municipal bonds. Historically speaking, election years tend to produce more wins for muni bonds. In fact, we've already seen muni bond yields increase. But elections as a whole play a role in global relationships, the United States' role in geopolitical tensions and global supply chains as a result. Of course, geopolitical tensions have played quite a toll on global supply chains and caused some disruptions. Starting from 2020, during the pandemic, we saw major disruptions with global lockdowns and a major pause in general. 
you had ships stuck at sea, you had factories closed and freight rates skyrocketing. It took a while, but eventually supply chains began to adapt and recover. However, the supply chains have been disjointed again following the rise of geopolitical conflicts around China and the Middle East. Although the markets have seen these disruptions before, what we're seeing now is quite different. Ships aren't trapped and factories aren't closed. Everything's still moving. We've touched on this in our geopolitics episode, but when it comes to the Red Sea conflicts with Houthi rebels attacks, shippers are simply choosing to avoid the Red Sea completely and the supply chain just given the danger. Bloomberg Intelligence has pointed at the fact that if you look at any shipper moving product from Asia to Europe, avoiding the Red Sea completely is adding around 10 days to any given voyage from Asia to Europe. And this is causing an even weaker delivery schedule, a weaker availability of shipping capacity and therefore all of the prices, right? So you've seen massive numbers of global containers being rerouted or delayed just because of the events in the Red Sea. Bloomberg also indicates freight rates have risen 300% in some routes over just the last six weeks. So to put that in perspective, in a little over a month, shipping a traditional 40-foot container for around $1,500 is now costing $4,500. So I'm sure we can imagine the bottom line impact for major corporations shipping internationally. In fact, given the smaller capacity, these major corporations are now competing for less space on ships, and this continues to contribute to higher costs overall. Mind you, these costs continue to be exacerbated by inflationary pressures as well. Something to point out here is that these prices seem very inflated, and it's likely that we're, we'll continue to see some near-term normalization soon. Andrew Sheets at Morgan Stanley highlighted that the rate of change of the indicator has mattered more than the actual level of the indicator. In other words, Investors prefer weaker indicators that are improving over stronger indicators getting weaker. And I would say this theme applies here. If you look at PMI, manufacturing, and supply chains in general, it appears that while they're still weaker than normal, they've notably improved over the past six months. As for the macro impacts on specific assets, I wanted to start with equities. Hopefully you got a chance to listen to one of our latest episodes where we took a deeper dive into equities and our outlook for 2024 with Dr. Shi Liu. If you haven't, definitely check it out. Lots of good perspectives. The bull run in 2023 led by the tech sector now has to face justification, which we see as earnings being the best way to do that. In the big tech and communication earnings last week, it has been justified so far. Meta crushed earnings leading to a pop in the stock along with the likes of Microsoft, Amazon, Uber, and Disney. Google, on the other hand, while still posting solid results, showed disappointing results overseas in China, not well received by the market. Apple, too, is slumping in China, but they weren't punished like Google. The theme for equities in 2024 is essentially there's room for growth, but only moderate growth. Our analysts are pointing to mid to high single digit growth for equities in 2024. However, we are a bit more optimistic for risk averse assets in the coming year other than equities. After their tumble, fixed income markets are likely to return to their normal state in less correlation with risk bearing asset classes as the interest rate narrative changes gears. Remember, we came out of this period in 2022 where the aggressive hiking cycle led to both the increase in bond yields and the downward pressure in equities. Now the yield curve has begun to de-invert, and it's really presenting investors with a compelling opportunity. 
The Fed still plays a role in the course of rates, so we can't speak too soon with all the systemic risks still present, but the opportunity is definitely there. What are your thoughts, Rob? Our analysts are pointing towards 2024 being the comeback year for bonds, more specifically investment-grade corporate bonds. If the soft landing scenario plays out and the markets avoid a recession, investment-grade credit should be positioned pretty well. On the flip side, even in the unlikely event we see a hard landing scenario, the drawdown should be minimal compared to what we'd likely see in other areas of credit, like lower-rated bonds. I wanted to jump in here quickly because I think you were about to get to alternatives next, but I wanted to talk about the demand surrounding the record high corporate issuances so far this year. Part of the reason corporate issuances have been up is the maturity wall for a lot of companies on investment-grade debt. $5.8 trillion of global debt comes due in 2026. So most of this debt will be used to refinance existing debt, but it's being met with strong demand. What's interesting here is that while base rates are effectively at a top, credit spreads have fallen and investors' appetite risk has grown in tandem. The market's pricing of a soft landing and rate cuts as early as March is the same for buying up these record issuances. Corporate bonds have been seen as resilient, and investors are buying these bonds in hopes of price gains. However, for high-yield tranches, rates are already down with more reasonable costs, so we think that most of these gains will still come from rates near high yields in the credit stack. Something else to discuss when it comes to credit is private debt and the role it played following the weakened regional banks. As rates began to spike and lending standards tightened across the board, we saw banks become extremely selective about providing debt financing to companies. As well as these companies were in desperate search for more flexible debt capital. This led to the rapid emergence of private credit as an asset class. These alternative lenders manage investment strategies that include direct lending, distressed debt, mezzanine, real estate, infrastructure, and special situation funds. The markets have demonstrated very high levels of demand for private debt solutions amid a higher rate environment. However, something I wanted to point out here was recently we've begun to see lending standards for those regional banks begin to loosen a little bit. And so in turn, they've gotten a tiny bit of share back from those alternative funds. Transaction volumes are down from their peak slightly. The flexibility and complexity of private lender solutions continue to be in demand in deal-making and financing. Over the past few years, we've seen private debt investors really take advantage of senior debt, especially given the effective shutdown of the syndicated loan market. However, now we're likely to see a focus shift towards junior debt. Something interesting we're seeing is many companies who raised debt before the aggressive rate hikes now find themselves struggling to service their current debt while also investing in growth within their business. So in turn, these companies are working on deleveraging transactions by raising junior capital to pay down their senior debt. Overall, from a private lender's perspective, with less covenants and features like pick interest, junior debt is effectively reducing the risk of default. I would say the overall theme for private debt will be fairly similar throughout 2024. Direct lending will be focused on similar areas like non-cyclical sectors that provide stable cash flows despite continued volatility in the markets, but the type of capital being deployed may vary quite a bit from what we've seen this past year. I would say going off this point, more of a tangential topic with private debt, our analysts are expecting a sharp return of sponsor activity in leveraged buyouts. 
We've talked about private equity in some recent episodes, but the big theme with private equity has been rising levels of dry powder amid a higher rate environment. We discussed the idea that with those higher financing rates, private equity firms have become increasingly selective about their investments, especially given the historically contracting macro environment. However, the story now has brightened just a little bit. We're getting slightly better news and indicators as the markets are pricing in those rate cuts. And this is excellent news for PE firms because it means that those record levels of dry powder may actually be getting put to work this year. And with this return of sponsor activity, we're also seeing ample support from the private debt side as well with a likely sharp increase in the quantity and volume of those LPOs. I think overall, mega funds will continue to outperform by tapping into more emerging asset classes throughout the private markets. We see mega funds tapping into spaces like the secondary market, infrastructure, and, and really just expanding their wheelhouse of solutions. And it's really cool to see how fast these major firms can penetrate these markets the way that they have been. And on that note, I can talk about commodities. Talking about energy and oil, we expect slightly higher gas prices due to the ongoing geopolitical tensions, expected OPEC cuts, and the context of US LNG, which we covered in our last transaction talk episode, so be sure to check that out as well. Coal prices are likely to fall as Europe and a lot of other countries continue their clean energy transition. China's stimulus efforts to turn around their economy, including low-cost financing aimed at urban renovation and affordable housing, supports demand for metals, specifically iron ore. Although signs of increasing demand are there, the slower-than-expected growth in contracting PMI in China has capped the upside on the prices for iron ore. Shifting into gold and silver, as our guest Dr. Liu mentioned in our 2024 equity strategy episode, the headwinds for equities could be tailwinds for gold and silver. Our analysts are optimistic for gold and silver. Now, an interesting point here, and similar to what we had mentioned with fixed income, is that typically gold and silver are safe haven assets for investors, right? But we're starting to see another safe haven asset reach investors, and that is Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. If Bitcoin can assert it is uncorrelated with equities, I think it'll be a big year for cryptocurrencies. So just to tie this all together here, it looks like the general theme for 2024 is fairly simple. Similar to the story with equities, there's room for growth, but only moderate growth. On top of this, indicators and conditions are not necessarily bright, but they're demonstrating clear signs of improvement. Going back to what we mentioned towards the beginning, weaker conditions improving are significantly better than stronger conditions weakening. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Inside the Street. We're proud to be hosted on the Evergreen Network. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Keep an eye out for a discussion in early February where we sit down with an analyst at Goldman Sachs Emerging Digital Assets Group and hear about some unique perspectives around the initiatives within blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. We'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. This material is published solely for informational purposes and may not be copied or recreated in any way. This podcast is not an offer to buy or sell any investment product and takes no liability for being incorrect about events that may occur within the markets. Remember that the financial markets are subject to change and past performance is not an indicator of future results. It is important to conduct your own research and carefully evaluate any financial decision prior to acting on it. 